The Guardian. Hello, I'm Matt Wells, coming up on this week's Media Talk. Bye-bye, Mark Byford. The BBC's Deputy Director General is the headline casualty in a cull of top jobs. Will his multi-million pound payoff lead to a winter of discontent at the corporation? Also in the podcast... We know that the, what the BBC World Service does is the strongest reputation driver for all of our audiences. Peter Horrocks expresses his concerns about the prospect of budget cuts at the World Service. Plus, hostilities between News Corporation and the BBC hot up, as Mark Thompson calls on the government to block Rupert Murdoch's takeover of Sky. And Andrew Marr calls bloggers inadequate, pimpled and single, and they're just as complimentary in reply. All this, and maybe a bit about lesbians in Glasgow too. And how long have you been into women? I didn't say I was... Yeah, This is Media Talk from The Guardian. Uh, hello all. Now, this week, uh, those 33 Chilean miners were safely hoisted from their two-month confinement underground. Uh, and in recognition of that, here we have in our own airtight, soundproof pod, uh, Dan Saber, the founder of the Beehive City uh, Media News website, uh, former media editor of The Times, and now uh, newly appointed head of media and technology right here at The Guardian. Are you quite sure that you're not making a terrible mistake, Dan? I am sure I'm going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> Excellent. And I'm sure you do too, Matt. I'm sure we will have lots of fun. Um, also, uh, here is uh, John Plunkett, Media Guardian's radio correspondent. What did you make of um, Sky's scoring system as the miners were rescued? It did have the feel of a sort of a reality TV game show a bit, didn't it? I thought yeah. they could have livened it up by using bingo numbers for each person who came out. Yes. <laughs> I think we can joke about it now, now that they're all safely I think we out. Can, yes, uh, very good. Um, uh, oh, and oh, the irony, of course, watching all of that happen on uh, all those miners celebrating on Margaret Thatcher's birthday. Yeah, quite enjoyable the whole thing was the most extraordinary sort of media event what with the cameras down below in the uh, uh, down below in the cavern and I I found myself watching it for quite a long time actually extraordinary yes well well, and and so did quite a lot of other people I've just been been handed the bill for our streaming costs on uh, online (coughs) I'm feeling a bit sick Uh, more on those miners later but uh, as we just mentioned uh, Dan you're about to start a new job but someone who's set to leave his is Mark Byford the BBC's Deputy Director General now, he was made redundant uh, this week as the corporation looks to make good on a promise to cut back on senior management and reduce salaries. He's not the only person leaving the BBC executive board. Marketing chief Sharon Bailey is off, uh, and like Byford, she won't be replaced, uh, while Peter Salmon and the HR director Lucy Adams are stepping down from the board to join the new BBC operating committee. This is what it's called. Uh, now, Byford's been at the Beeb for over three decades. But the, uh, his £500,000 salary package and eyebrow-raising expenses claims have long been a bugbear, and his reported £1 million payoff and no doubt extremely generous pension pot have gone down rather badly with the NUJ, who say a winter of discontent is now looming. Um, more on that uh, uh, in a moment. But first, shall we pay Byford his dues, Dan? Because, I mean, he's had a long, distinguished career. At the, uh, at the BBC. I never quite knew what he did, though. Oh, well. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew he was ultimately responsible for BBC News. Journalism. journalism. Head of journalism. Well, OK, head of journalism. And I knew that he uh, took control of the BBC and apologised for all its errors uh, in the wake of the uh, Hutton report. Yes. I, I can't quite remember much of the rest. And I think his problem was, was that BBC, the perception has always been the BBC's top heavy in management. 
and uh, you know the fact of a deputy director general where with no clear remit or no remit big enough to justify the title just made you think you know what is this organization doing how many people does it need at the top um john in the guardian report it said that he was very good at spotting the no there was a vegetable involved i think it was flying was tomatoes omelets. What was it? flying omelets flying yes. omelets yes um, that was um <laughs> Uh, that's right. He, Ron Neal, the yes. former managing director of BBC News, said that he was good at spotting flying omelettes coming over the horizon. Which, which is uh, very, always useful. It is good, but uh, <laughs> someone commented below, I said, well, if that's the case, why did, uh, why did he always end up with egg on his face? <laughs> yes, was, very, good. <laughs> very well done. But I, I, I uh, uh, agree, agree with Dan in the sense that it was hard as an outsider to see exactly what he did at the Beeb. Uh, it reminds you of the old line, he leaves a hole almost impossible to see. <laughs> and uh, I, he was a bit of a, a lightning rod for, for criticism of the BBC. It was a bit of a, a bit of an executive Jonathan Rossin sense in terms of how much he earned. Yeah, that's true, yes. The fact yeah. he's got a pension pot which I think is worth three point seven million, yeah. which will earn him an estimated two hundred fifteen thousand pounds a year in retirement. So, uh, I mean, it, it's he's obviously getting a, a big payoff. But if that means that he's off the books in, in years ahead, then maybe maybe it's a good thing. Um, and it, he is, as well as John said, he's a, a lightning rod. He sort of crystallises all the, all those things that, 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 that the BBC's bad at: executive pay, bad bad PR, too many too many managers. It's sort of all, all of that crystallised in one person. It, it? Exactly. So it, indeed, it even chimes in with the broader public mood of mm. uh, uh, of all these public sector workers on, yeah, yeah. On, on on gilded pensions. Yeah. And Mark seems to be part of that generation of uh, of people who did very well out of sort of public service generally and you know, 40 years in a job or whatever it was and you got an enormous pension uh, to show for it anyway he clearly would have achieved a lot more than we're talking about here and i think i think we're sounding a bit ungenerous but but i think the fundamental point is there was a you know there was a perception problem uh as has been well put by john that he was perhaps the jonathan ross mm. on the executive side well perhaps to depersonalize it a bit then uh, there are more executives leaving what what's the bit what's the big picture about what mark thompson is doing here i think the really interesting thing is not so much who's who's leaving and the predictable sort of critique from the right-wing press about the size of the pension pot but who's on the way up and i think helen bowden's elevation to was very interesting and i think you've got to be uh looking at you know who's the who's the next stretch general going to be and i think how long is Mark going to stay there? Is he going to stay past the Olympics? You've got to think he's going to want to do the Olympics. But Mark was in America last week, uh, which always gets you thinking that mm. one day he'd like to go there. And so I think, you know, Helen's sort of moving up quite interestingly at a time when we're talking about maybe Alan Yentol being also on his way out. Uh, Jaina Bennett's sort of position seems to be a little unclear. Some of the speculation in the mail I saw today, for example. So... You know, that's that's what Mark Thompson's got to be thinking about succession. Well, there does need to be a succession plan, doesn't there, John? And and there isn't an off, obvious one. Um, again, in in some of the media guiding coverage, it was mentioned this week that um, I think it was Maggie Brand recalled that John Burt um, had encouraged a sort of coterie of potential successors to c- compete against each other, really, for for the for the top jobs. And Mark Thompson and Greg Dyke d- didn't haven't really done that. Yeah, and one of those people that I think Bert encouraged was uh, was Mark Byford, wasn't it? And, mm. and his problem was that when he actually became the public face of the BBC, when when Greg Dyke resigned, he, he, he it seemed uh, that he wasn't up to the job. And I remember he said after Hutton that the BBC, there was a famous line on the feedback programme just a few weeks after the Hutton report, that the BBC shouldn't be in the business of dealing with exclusives, which again seemed a, a, mm. a strange thing to say and I don't think uh, helped, his, helped him at the time. But uh, yeah. as far as the field going forward, I think it is, at the moment, it's almost a field of one in terms of Helen Bowden. Yeah. It seems that Jenny Bennett hasn't ever really recovered from the whole Crown Gate saga. Yeah, and um, so w- what, would you, um, what would you predict, Dan? Uh, how many years would you give Mark Thompson? 
the Olympics feels like a real bookend, right. doesn't it? So I just wonder when, you know, once he's done that, what's really left for Mark to do? Because it's actually around that time he'd have done the licence fee negotiation. Yeah, I was just going to say, when, when is that happening? Is, will he complete that, what do you think? Or is that something that, that actually you would say the next person should, uh, should take on because they're going to have to live with the consequences of it, of course? In th- I think the theory of that is sound. I think the practice is different. Jeremy Hunt wants to bring the licence fee talks forward to 2011, as you know, and he wants to do that perhaps because it suits, you know, suits the government to do so again. It's the backdrop of austerity when things may have picked up by 2012 and BBC demands will be it will be BBC demands for more will be harder to resist. Uh, so I think we have a situation where the licence fee negotiation is likely to be done by the time of the Olympics, and indeed once the Olympics end, the Olympics will be done. So it, it feels like an obvious point, but. I mean, how often have you seen executives sort of hang on and on and on until they reach a non-obvious point? Yes. Yeah, uh, it happens all the time. Uh, we would never happen here. We wouldn't hang on and on and on until, uh, until, until the crowd are begging us to leave. Uh, you can, we certainly won't uh, with that particular story, of which you can read plenty more on mediaguardian.co.uk. Uh, I'm Matt Wells. This is Media Talk. Uh, let's check up on some of the other stories making the media headlines uh, this week. Um, now, the British media has joined forces to try and stop uh, Rupert Murdoch's fooled takeover of B Sky B. Um, what's going on here, Dan? This is interesting because of the, the names of the people who all got together, isn't it? I think this is fascinating, uh, and it's a sort of rare example of where media hyperbole is justified. Uh, in all the time I've been writing and thinking about the media business, I've never seen anything like this. You've got an alliance of the of the companies behind the, the, the Mail and the Telegraph, uh, the Mirror and indeed the Guardian, all saying to Vince Cable, you've got to call this takeover in. You've got to basically look at whether a combined News Corp and Sky would sort of uh, violate raised questions of media plurality, mm. i.e. be too big and ultimately squeeze out the other guys in the newspaper business. And, John, it's, um, I wonder if how much of a political pressure, uh, I wonder how much political pressure this will exert on, on cable, because I would imagine he would find it quite difficult to turn it down, because he, cause if, he, if he doesn't refer it, or call it in rather, then, um, then he's just going to be looking as if he's done Sky's bidding. Yep, you feel that he do. You feel that he does have to have to refer it. Yeah, and the, the danger that they're pointing out is that if um, uh, the the issue is that they might bundle their uh, the, the bundle their um, television and newspaper and uh, internet services together in the way that uh, Sky has previously done with uh, mm. with broadband and their and their TV services, and that might make it very difficult for their for print and, and TV uh, rivals to compete. So, uh, you imagine he would refer it. Yes, but today we saw that, or well, yesterday, the Times hit back with a leader. Um, criticising Mark Thompson in particular and the BBC. And today, slightly less seriously, perhaps Kelvin McKenzie used his column in The Sun again to, to hit back at the BBC and say said it was a no-brainer that Vince, uh, Vince Cable shouldn't refer it. You were a uh, correspondent at the time, as you, you, know, you know all those people there. What, what, what did you make of that leader, Dan? I was very surprised by it. I think there's a difference. It became perilously close to advancing the corporate view in the leader line of The Times. Mm. And the point is that because they, they, they could have just left it alone, couldn't they? Not, it would have been much smarter to leave it alone, in my view, or, or to report it in news. I think the issue is that the relationship between the Times and News Corp has always been one of sort of studied, modest attachment. Rupert has a very different relationship with the Sun. He acts as editor-in-chief, and if he wants something to go in, he expects it to, and kind of that's the culture we're used to, and it's a tabloid paper. You know, the Times is a different kind of paper. It's it's for a free-thinking audience. It's not meant to advance a narrow corporate agenda. 
when it appears to do so, it's problematic. You know, if News Corp wanted to put out a statement uh, saying that the Gang of Seven, because obviously there's BBC and BT, Channel 4 are also involved, if you wanted to put out a statement and distribute to everybody, it would have had no problem doing so and getting coverage for it. To not do that particularly strongly, but to, to, to opt to sort of run its defence through a leader, I think was very, I think was very strange indeed. Mm. And, and, and a little bit... You know, very unusual actually in the history, in even the history of the ownership of the Times. Yeah. These issues were normally not touched. All right. Um, we'll see how that uh, develops in the, in the coming weeks. Let's move on, on to the radio. Uh, John, uh, one of Dan's colleagues on um, Be- Beehive City, Adam Sherwin, broke a very good story, um, claiming that Chris Moores would be leaving Radio 1 and heading back to Capital, which is, of course, where he worked in 1996, pr- uh, pre-Global, of course. This plays into my theory that I advanced... Uh, on this podcast, not when you, you were here, but a couple of weeks ago, that um, uh, that Moyles has been told that this is his last contract and that this is why he's pissed off and generally generally grumpy. And now, and now he's, he's, he's looking for a way out so he can sort of pretend that he, or at least portray, that he's been snatched by Global. Would it be a good fit yeah. for Global, do you think? Well, Capital Radio, they relaunch in January as a, as a, as a national station. Um, in their, uh, immediately, they're still going to have separate breakfast shows. There's no sort of national breakfast show to him to go to. Uh, it might be that he goes to a mid-morning or an afternoon show, which, which are national. Or it might be, I think, that Global could, if they wanted to, make most of those new capital stations uh, come under one breakfast show umbrella. So it might be they're going to change their format and actually do put him in on breakfast. Mm. So I don't know. I think there are two, two issues. One is that Johnny Vaughan does quite a good job for Capital already in, in London. I think he's, he's number one in the ratings. Uh, and the the issue for Radio One is their sort of succession planning and who they have in place if they let Moyles go next summer. Because the, I guess the obvious uh, the, the young successor would be um, would Scott be Greg James. Well, Scott Mills could yeah. be sort of an interim, but he's he's pretty much uh, he, he comes across old. as a lot he comes across as a lot younger than Chris Moyles. But in fact, they're pretty much the same age. Oh, right. But I think he's rather more into his Twitter and social media than Moyles is. So yeah. he probably appeals to a younger demographic. But the kind of obvious successor further down the line would be maybe someone like Greg James, who's yeah. on the afternoon show, or possibly maybe maybe even uh, Fern Cotton. Oh, um, Fern Cotton. Fern Cotton. Mentioned, but this is an absurd but, thing. Oh, yeah. but the <laughs> very popular with the young people, apparently. But uh, the, the, the thing is, have they had enough experience in daytime to, to sort, of, sort of prepare well, them? Well, Greg for the James show? is very young, isn't he? He yeah. was practically you know still at school when they had their first hired yeah. him, wasn't he? Yeah, he's yeah. right in their demographic. Yeah, he's, absolutely. So, uh, and, and, the, and the thing, the thing, of course, with with, with Chris Moyles though is that there isn't the, the obvious. Um, exit plan for Radio 1 exit routes for Radio 1 DJs are are either um, move on to Radio 2 or become a serious broadcaster on Radio 5 Live and none of those seem to be likely options for Chris Moyles. Well clearly Chris Evans is going to be around for a long time Uh, Chris Moyles has tried several times to sort of get into TV, it's not Mm. quite worked I remember various sort of half-baked Channel 4 shows and so on. So Look, I mean, it's a cha- that, that's challenging for him. I, mean, I think Chris has re- kind of reached the end of his time. It's it's slightly embarrassing for Radio One, given the demographic that they pursue, the youthful demographic they pursue. That you've got a key piece of talent, your most important piece of talent, in his mid thirties, and uh, at that, at such an important slot. So, mm. I think the Beeb has to do something. You know, what, what I always thought the Beeb should do, but I think they sort of you know got this argument completely wrong, which is that. Um, uh, they should actually say that Radio 1's a station about new music, not a station about youth, and Radio 2 is a station about kind of classic music, if you like, not classical, but mm. the music you know and love, uh, and then not, again, worry about the age range of, of, of its talent. But they're not in that discussion. They sort of make out that this is, you know, a, young, this is a station for young people and this is a station for middle-aged folks, and then you get trapped. 
Yeah, absolutely. Media talk, media talk, of course, is the podcast for the media news you know and love. Um, uh, I wanted to, uh, um, I wanted John just to briefly mention a few other things. Uh, Mark Damaser admitted, well, he's, he was a very curious interview in the, in the Radio Times. He said he'd axed the UK theme by mistake. Well, sort of by mistake. Sort of by mistake. Yeah. He said that when he looked at the listening figures for the, uh, for the slot, he, he misread it and uh, implied that he thought it was 800 listeners when in fact, in reality, it was 800,000 listeners. <laughs> so you do tend to think that maybe the tongue is slightly in his cheek here and it was maybe just a, a sort of final parting shot to the uh, to all those listeners that, that, that hated him for for axing this uh, this fritz spiegel melody uh, yes. all, all of four years ago yeah why do we still care yeah i know we don't care we don't care uh, um what's about alan partridge uh, c- coming to radio uh, well he's back he has got more than 800 listeners uh, he's coming back with a with a, with a digital show uh which is um, sponsored by fosters it's going to be an online show uh beginning in uh, november uh, which will be the first time we've heard from him for, uh, since, uh, I think it was 2002, his last TV series. And even then, you only got sort of glimpses. I think on the, on the first series of I'm Alan Partridge, you only got glimpses of his, glimpses of his, of his radio show. Yes. So and since it's going to be his actual radio show, called, on called, uh, it's on North Norfolk Div- Digital, <laughs> and it's called uh, Mid-Morning Matters. Right, so yes. it sounds like a good listen. Yeah, I, I, can't, I can't wait for it. Um, final re- reminder that we're at the Radio Festival next week, very excitingly. I'll be interviewing Five Live controller Adrian Van Claveren and Absolute Radio's Clive Dickens. Uh, send me your questions via, via, via Twitter. Should be quite a good event, um, John, I think. Uh, it's, it's been revamped a bit. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm really looking forward to it. I think there's at least half a dozen uh, really interesting sessions. People like uh, Chris Evans uh, and Graham Norton are going to be up there. And as you say, Adrian Van Clever and Bob Shannon at Radio 2 and also the new Radio 4 controller, Gwyneth Williams, will be there. So uh, I think uh, last year it was a bit, of a bit of a letdown, but this year I think they've got some really good bookings. And, sure. it, and it's in Salford. I'm not, it's in Salford, yes, very appropriately. Um, but, but it's not in Media City. Those are the it's new not. Movies. It's across the road. It's a it? stone's throw, but that's not recommended. All right, radioacademy.org. If you haven't got your tickets yet, and there, are, there is still time, uh, onwards and upwards, Andrew Marr told the Cheltenham Literary Festival that citizen journalists will never replace real news journalists and that Bloggers are, quote, inadequate, pimpled and single. So um, what will big ears will make of me as, blog, as blogs? I don't know. He said that so-called citizen journalism is the spewings and rantings of very drunk people late at night. Um, John, this is... <laughs> well, I'm not, I'm not single. Yes. I can tell. Which of those bits are... Yeah. <laughs> do you, do you Take the ones to? which apply. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it was ill-advised. Yeah, I mean, uh, as, as people said in response, to, um, yeah, you know, this is obviously true of certain bloggers and, and some of the comments you well, get. Well, he's, he's talking about what he's doing. It show, shows that he doesn't know what he's talking about. He's talking about commenters, isn't it? The yeah. people who comment below the line who are not bloggers. That's different. Yeah. And anonymous, unmoderated comments exactly. can, be, can, can be a... Can be a minefield. But, it never um, happened. The Guardian. It was certainly not. No, <laughs> we're very, we're very careful about who we, who we let on our site. Um, news the world paywall. Should we do a quick, quick, quick line on that? Is that going to work? Uh, you, you're, you're our paywall expert, uh, Dan. Uh, Rupert Murdoch's coming next week, isn't Is he? he? He's giving a speech. Where? And now you've got me on all the you've got me on all the details. <laughs> uh, not at Mrs. Thatcher's 85th birthday party. Right. He's speaking on Thursday. There's only 200 people allowed in the room. Uh, Are you one uh, of them? No, certainly not. Goodness me, I'm going to join the garden now. <laughs> uh, uh, but there'll be there'll be sort of, uh, and I think that would be a mo- well that be a moment where he could say any number of things. Uh, not least what he might say vis-a-vis all the um, critics of the uh, Sky News Corp transaction. But maybe finally we'll get some numbers as to how well the Times paywall is doing. I mean, if someone's got to say. It, someone's yeah. got to do it and i yes. think um rupert murdoch would be the man okay well we'll, we'll, we'll wait with better breath for that as for the news of the world paywall look <laughs> i mean so far it doesn't look like that the sort of times and sunday times have shot the lights out i don't think they've done badly i just think it's a sort of slow mm. long haul to kind of win more 
customers over, and I suspect we're in the low tens of thousands. Anything more would be a big surprise. <laughs> the, the news of the world on the face of it, yeah, it's got some exclusive content, all that, you know, Max Mosley orgy video, and who knows what else you can watch, Ricky Hatton indulging. <laughs> I think the problem, though, is... There's plenty of better quality of that stuff elsewhere. Yeah, right? and it's it? free, too. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> It's racier and free. And I'm not quite sure I quite want to... Um, how if I feel good about paying that bit extra for it? No. There's bound to be some audience. I mean, it sells whatever it does, nearly three million copies on a Sunday. So there's bound to be some kind of audience for, for that sort of content online. But I'm a lot less. I, I, I'm actually a, a lot less sure that it exists, even though the news of the world put a lot of effort into generating multimedia exclusive material. Mm. Okay. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Dan and John. There's more on all of those stories. Links at mediaguardian.co.uk. Now, this week, Peter Horrocks, the BBC's Director of Global News, has been expressing concerns about potential looming government cuts to the World Service as part of that uh, public service restraint that we were talking about earlier. It's facing a reduction, possibly, of around 25% in its £270 million budget from the Foreign Office, a cut that Horrocks thinks will, quote, diminish Britain's voice in the global conversation. Well, uh, I chaired a debate this week at the Frontline Club, which uh, Horrocks was a participant at, um, so I took the opportunity to ask him what would happen if the World Service really does lose a quarter of its budget. We're expecting that we will need to make efficiencies and if we're asked to make efficiencies we may also need to prioritise our services. We've done the work on that, we still don't know what the funding settlement is from the Foreign Office and I was raising questions but I was also referring to what the Foreign Secretary has been saying about the importance of the BBC World Service, about the importance of maintaining its global reach, maintaining the number of language services and ensuring that the BBC's managerial and editorial independence is is, is sustained and those are things that that we agree on. So we're trying to find a resolution to make sure that we keep the World Service as strong for the BBC and for the UK's benefit as possible. And what is the benefit, um, in in, in your view, of maintaining a strong uh, global presence for the BBC? The benefit is for the audiences that we have around the world, many of whom don't have access to free and independent news. And in those markets where they do have broader access to news, the BBC's standards of impartiality, the quality of BBC news, creates a strong reputation for Britain as an impartial nation, as a, as a country that gives a service to other countries. That helps to build Britain's reputation. It means that Britain's a more attractive trading partner. Recent research shows how those who consume the BBC want to do business with Britain, and it builds Britain's standing in the world. We know that the, what the BBC World Service does is the strongest reputation driver for all of our audiences. What, what kind of budget cuts are you anticipating? Could you live with? I'm in a negotiation. You know, we're right in the last stages of that negotiation, and it's not a good idea when you're negotiating to give your, to give your hand away or to give numbers away, no matter how tempting your suggestion, suggestion is. So I'm not, I'm not going to do that. What I can do is talk about the value that we believe that we create but the realism that we have about the public spending picture you know we are expecting that we will have to be significantly more efficient and make changes as as a result of the spending settlement but when the government have difficult choices to make and um, competing priorities is really in a world where there is no shortage of news and no shortage of outlets is there really a necessity for britain to 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 fund yet and yet another uh, news source there is a shortage of news in many of the countries that we broadcast to. 
where there isn't free and independent media and where the BBC sets help, help set editorial standards, which has a, a wider benefit within those countries. And for the countries where there is freer media, the kind of quality and the impartiality that we offer creates a reputation for Britain that we believe is one of the strongest drivers of how people around the world see the UK and we believe that that is a real value for the, for the country. Peter Horrocks there. We put a link to a video of that debate, the Frontline Club, on our blog, guardian.co.uk slash media talk. Um, Dan and John, I mean, Dan, the, 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 the fact is, is that the World Service is funded by the Foreign Office, which is public, obviously public money. It, no, nobody can escape, well, uh, uh, unless it's schools and hospitals which are, are protected. No one is escaping the axe. Well, not unreasonably so. I think that the problem with the World Service, uh, certainly that I have, and I think any onlook would have, is there's a real post-colonial feel to a lot of what it does. And I think, for example, why the World Service needs to launch sort of, uh, you know, have Arabic television, uh, Farsi television, why it needs to be in or contemplating being in these areas, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, if you've sort of been to you know, Dubai or Abu Dhabi, you're looking at sort of healthy, vibrant economies and people are quite, frankly, they don't need us to provide some media for them. There are, that said, there are some services, I think, you know, the Bur- for example, the Burma service played a particularly important role during the, uh, uh, during the crisis of uh, a few years back. There, there are some of these sort of traditional lifeline, as they're called, radio services that I think you can, you can see a place for almost a sort of a charitable act by the UK and, uh, you know, one or two countries where there really is no choice in free media and perhaps we can make a contribution. I suspect you can cut back a lot of what the World Service does, though, and get kind of good savings and get the savings the government wants. Okay. Uh, speaking of world news, uh, there's no doubting it. The rescuing of those miners in Chile has been gripping stuff. Um, fortunately, had a happy ending. Uh, but according to a memo from John Williams, who's the head of uh, BBC World News, um, uh, he said that the BBC had spent so heavily on its Chilean miners' rescue coverage uh, that it was for- being forced to reduce its coverage of other ma- major events, including next month's G20 uh, summit in Seoul and the Oscars. And John, um, uh, he said in that mem- memo that they w- would only be able able to send uh, they wouldn't be able to send both Robert Peston and Nick Robinson they would have to choose what what a decision to have to make I think Lord Sugar is going to choose (laughs) Uh, but it is it will be a face-off between uh, between uh, both of them they both want to go Um, I mean I don't think you can blame the BBC for throwing the resources at the Gillian Miner story I mean if they hadn't covered that properly and if Sky News had wiped the floor with them then there would have been no end of of criticism well there there was it was a bit rubbish the BBC's coverage was still a bit rubbish I thought you know they they, they were reduced to interviewing each other at one point mind you I suppose that, that that happens doesn't it in these stories that go on a bit and it's, I mean, it's just unfortunate for them that they... Th- I think their overspend was already 500,000 this year. <laughs> I've just realised I'm criticising the BBC for interviewing other BBC journalists. And Here we are. <laughs> and, and, yeah, here we are. It is a bit harsh, perhaps. Um, uh, yes, but uh, uh, I think yeah, probably probably worth... If you're going to throw resources at a story, that's, that's, the one to, that's the one to throw them at. Yeah, I, I think pretty just, justified. I know the critics are saying, what, well, they send 26 members of staff? Cost £100,000. Yeah, nearly one per minor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all, all the sort of stuff we've heard before... Uh, you know, Channel Four, I think, sent three, three by contrast. But then Channel Four sort of got, you know, one hour of news a day that it's trying to fill. The BBC's got sort of any number of outlets, including a sort of twenty-four-seven news channel. It was a massive news story. We all wanted, we you know, we couldn't get enough of it. You know, as I say, I mean, I was actually glued, to, I was glued to the literally TV, glued to the TV, glued to the TV yesterday at breakfast. I've got to get, a, I've got to find something better to do in my time. But it, look, it was a good story, and I think the BBC spend is justified, and that's kind of life. Big news story you spend a lot you make savings elsewhere 
wonder, I wonder what they'll do with the mine. Do you think they'll turn it into a, a, a tourist attraction or... Or, or, or perhaps a, 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 perhaps an a unlikely drive. tourist attraction with a <laughs> two thousand feet drop. Well, <laughs> you first, Mum. Perhaps a water flume. <laughs> Very possibly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's, it's the way to make the money back, isn't it? There's golden in their mines. They could call it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they, could well, call it they could call it that. I'd quite like to go down. I think they should keep that as a sort of ride that you that, that you go up and down on. I, whoever's been behind the sort of media organisation has been brilliant, which I think has been the Chilean government. But yes. just the, 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 this has been done as a sort of twenty four hour. You know, rolling news, real time. Yes, because they provided the, uh, the the live television feed that everyone in the world took. There was a live. There was a live feed. There was a live feed in the cavern. You know, yes. you, you you saw what happened as the guys came out. They had what four healthy guys came out first, so they could sort of handle all the attention and some of the media attention. There was live pictures in the uh, wherever you you know wherever, wherever the miners went to meet their families. There yes. were cameras there. There were. It was. I thought. Brilliantly done. Some there's the, someone out there who's advised them expertly. Yes, Peter Basil, yeah, probably. <laughs> probably, yes. Um, uh, let's have a, well, let's have a quick roundabout roundup of uh, tele, uh, television news. Did it? Did anyone see film 2010? You caught a bit of it. Uh, I did. I did. Yeah. Well, the, I, this, I, this I, is the new version with Claudia Winkleman and Danny Lee. It, this generated the, the least likely headline I've ever seen in the Daily Mail, which was "Bring Back Jonathan Ross," <laughs> which is surely one to cut out and keep. But uh, I, I thought it was all right. Yeah. I mean, I, I quite admired the fact they did it live. Uh, it helped that they had the uh, the opening night of the London Film Festival as a bit of a bit of a hook for it um, but uh, the problem with the Ross show was so much of it was him speaking straight to camera or doing interviews which weren't a patch on the sort of um, slightly edgier uh, chats he did on Friday night with Jim and Ross it was just an incredibly dull watch uh, and uh, yeah I think it was early days it's the first show but uh, I thought it was a, a promising start yeah and had the Guardian's Danny Lee on it of course but uh, yes. in no way affected my opinion no of course, of course, of course it didn't it will no way, in no way affect our coverage of it on uh, the Guardian either lip service uh, this is the new BBC3 uh, dr- uh, lesbian drama lesbian drama set yeah. among the groovy 20-somethings of, uh, of Glasgow yeah, yeah uh, BBC3 it, production the, a broadcast you, I should say you to love Glasgow it's yeah. <laughs> that um, uh, the, the Sunday Times uh, in the TV previews said it was the worst thing that, that they'd ever seen even BBC3 viewers might blush well there uh, were a few complaints apparently when there was a uh, there was a sex scene in a, in a funeral parlour but uh, being a being a lesbian drama, the only stiffy was the corpse. <laughs> That's but right. Just about got that out. <laughs> too but good. The, the work you put in that was right. It was John. better in rehearsal. <laughs> it's just, uh, yeah, God, it's two Ronnies, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, still, five hundred eighty thousand people tuned in. Yeah, so not to be sniffed at. I watched. I must admit, I watched a trailer. Danny Cohen did a sort of BBC Three showcase, and they did uh, 174 new shows as they do in a blur. And you, you couldn't remember any of them other than Lip Service, which you could just seem to consist of a lot of women rolling around on top of each other. It mm. was the second I mean, most it, popular um, program on, on the iPlayer, but that yeah, probably yeah. isn't a surprise. <laughs> yes. uh, what's quite interesting, they've, they've had this sort of relentless sort of social media and, and, and sort of marketing campaign, also in the mag- also in the magazines. And, I mean, just based on the you know the usual sort of well, it's a lesbian show and the stars. Are Beautiful and nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Mm. Oh, Work for you, though, Dan. Um, uh, the, the, uh, now, the second episode of The Apprentice was on this week. I thought it lacked a bit of the spark of the first. Mind you, there were sparks flying because those bloody girls, honestly, they're just they're like cats in a sack. They're absolutely. And the usual thing that happened, the worst one, he didn't fire her because she, she's obviously going to be, you know, because you're early on in the series. So the last thing you do is, you know, fire the one who might cause a bit of spark later on. Mm. So he fired the one that was a bit of a non-entity. She would at some, she was never, never going to win, would be fired at some point in the uh, middle of the series, might as well, well get rid of her. 
No, not that I'm remotely cynical about this programme, of course. <laughs> Stream of consciousness. It was. It was a rant. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, they're all, they're all idiots, aren't they? Yes. But uh, they, they, they are this year. Everything I touch turns to sold. Uh, uh, they yeah. should call it, the, the subtitle should be, No Wonder We're in a Recession. <laughs> yes. The Apprentice. Uh, yeah. I just think it, it, it's that classic. Now the Big Brother's gone, this is the show for people who have no discernible talent of any kind. Uh, you know, at least if you go for the X Factor, notionally you can sing or, you know, you get found yeah. out if you can't or auto-tune saves the day. Um, and if you can dance a bit, you go for, I don't know, Britain's Got Talent. And here, there's this, I still think somehow everybody believes that they are a billionaire in the making in Britain. This has sort of some become ingrained in British culture and this show, show kind of feeds off that. Yeah. And it just doesn't matter. They're all clueless. And yeah. the house they're in was once used for a, a sky launch by Stuart Murphy. Was it really? I read, yeah. Oh, really? That I wasn't invited very to nice. that launch. <laughs> it yeah. was yeah. very yeah. nice. Yeah. What does that tell us? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, okay, thank you very much. Uh, that's your lot for this week. Uh, before we, we leave you, uh, we do need you to share something that you've learned from, from your last seven days, pounding the media beat. Dan, um, what have you been up to? I got a telling off from David Abraham. Did you? Over lunch. He's a, I thought he's an all-round nice guy. I, I think he's an all-round fairly nice guy. Actually, he's a pretty nice yeah. guy. But he was taking issue with the sort of opinion I had. He, 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 even, drew a, he even drew a graph on a... Uh, on a napkin? Yeah, actually on a bit of paper, but it what? looked like a napkin. So let's call it a napkin. This uh, is the uh, chief executive of Channel 4, of course. Yes. Yeah, the chief executive of Channel 4 for those uh, uh, not with us. No, he, uh, he, what he was taking issue with the fact was that the, or, or he believes that I've been arguing that kind of free-to-air broadcasting is in terminal decline. Mm-hmm. And that the sort of decline, the, you know, the, the collapse we saw last year, or or uh, will just be followed by inevitable sort of dissipation, and Channel Four be left sort of showing repeats of Big Brother and nothing else uh, in about sort of 2017. And 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 he was saying, look, essentially trying to argue, there's not more life in in, in free to air. There's a lot more life in the TV advertising market. There's a lot more life in being a free-to-air broadcaster. Pointed out that, you know, we've done a – Channel 4 was doing a billion pound of billings this year, but once you factor in UK TV as well, that the, that the upsurge in advertising meant I think they're doing – they're putting another 60 million into the sh- schedule. So, yeah, he drew me a graph in which the sort of line of ad sales sort of goes obediently down uh, into last year and then bumps back up again like a sort of inverted camel hump. Yes, for so, no apparent reason. Well, you know, the economy's a bit better than it was, <sighs> yes, and yes. then it might be a bit better or worse next year. I don't know. Anyway, he said, yes. that's it. It's free-to-air telly. It's not dead. Right. You okay. heard well, it here first. Uh, th- th- thank you very much. Uh, and, John, uh, do, what, what have you uh, – you, uh, you've probably just spend, been spending all your entire spare time doing what we, we know that you do, which is which – is re- watching, watching the West Wing. The West Wing. Yeah, yeah but this will be the last time I talk about the West Wing because right. uh, we just started the seventh series. Yeah. So after a mid-season dip, I'm reassured that the seventh series is, uh, is one to die yes. for. Yes, yeah, so, it, uh, it is very good, so but, very but Series 6 wasn't that great. It fell away yeah. a bit. I'm, yeah. I'm enjoying Alan Alder. Alan Alder? Yes. Who my wife insists on calling Steve Martin. <laughs> Makes me feel very old. <laughs> it's not Steve Martin. It's the funny guy. Yeah. So the next time I see you on the media talk, I'll... Uh, Assuming Dan's not here because he's slightly earlier in the series, uh, I, 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 I'll season talk two. about it. Yeah, season two. Well, well, I, well, I learned. Memories. Yes. Anything else? Or are you, are you done? I'm done. Right, thank you. Uh, well, I learned that uh, Nicky Campbell's occasional slips of the tongue, which we've uh, we, we've covered on this program before, are contagious. Just to ask his five live colleague Peter Allen. Philip, it's 24 minutes before six. Very good evening to you all. I'm in Birmingham I'm with the Conservatives. They've been talking about the economy uh, today. The really big decisions have to wait until Parliament is back, of course, in a couple of weeks. Weeks. The coalition, remember, is committed to cutting, cutting tens of billions of pounds from public spending over the next two years. Oh, dear. Oh, he never blinked. <laughs> he didn't blink, did he? Uh, oh, dear. dear, dear. Uh, what, he, what he meant to say was... Uh, 
Tories are a right bunch of cuts. <laughs> yes, I was going to say he's. I was going to say he's putting the N into cuts. Yes, that's all. Yes, there's definitely plenty of cuts. <laughs> there's more on this one. Yeah. More on this one. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, so, sorry if you were if your ears were offended about that. Uh, thank you to Dan Saver and John Plunkett. See you both again soon. See you. See you. See you a lot. Uh, actually, Dan, around the building. What can I say? It's going to be brilliant. Yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, John, you'll be with us uh, live-ish uh, at the radio festival ne- uh, next week. So we'll I will then. be live-ish. Yeah. Uh, very good. And uh, in the meantime, you can post your feedback on everything that you've just heard on our blog. That's guardian.co.uk slash media talk. Uh, or follow me on Twitter at Matthew Wells. Your questions for Radio Festival people, very welcome. Media Talk is produced by Ben Green. See you again soon. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.